Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Mule deer, whitetail, turkey, waterfowl, it doesn't matter what game animal we're talking about. In the end, how well they do comes down to the same thing, habitat. Yes, sir. We preach that a lot, and uh, we get guests that help us reinforce that message. And today we had Jim Heffelfinger, who's a famous deer biologist. I mean, if folks run in the deer circles, particularly in the West, they've heard of Jim He's an author. He's been on tons of podcasts. He's just, if you can think of something to ask about deer, he'll know the answer to, or he'll know who knows the answer. And we wanted to explore that a little. I mean, everything from CWD to, uh, you know, big winters, how that impacts deer to the, the, how deer evolved, you know, how did there become whitetail and mule deer and blacktail deer and all these different things. And Jim helped us unpack a bunch of that today. Dude, we went back to the Pleistocene era, so, you know, <laughs> this is some serious history we got into. Yeah, we even talked about uh, interbreeding of whitetail and mule deer and how that can happen. We talked about antler COVID. Growth, COVID. We, we went all over the place, so I think, uh, A, just Jim's just a heck of a guy, and we really appreciate his time. He's a very busy guy, but B, just, you know, you learn something. Every minute he talks, you learn a lot, so... Appreciate Jim being here. I think folks are going to love this one. Check it out, Jim Heffelfinger. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are nwf outdoors howdy everyone aaron kindle here on the nwf outdoors podcast with my co-host and friend bill cooksey how's it going today bill all good in tennessee brother all good how about you i love it uh i love hearing about good things happening in tennessee good good here in colorado too uh i'm, I'm really looking forward to fall archery season starts here very soon and been doing a little scouting and ready for some cooler weather. It's been a hot <laughs> summer, so glad, glad we're, we're getting that direction. Uh, I'm glad. I'm really happy about our guest today because I've been trying to pin him down for a while. And uh, I saw him in person at the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Conference in New Mexico a while back and chased him kind of like the paparazzi trying to get him to sit in a room for a minute with me and, uh, and have a And after reading his bio, I understand why. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's one of these ones that, you know, I think 
Jim, you've, you've maybe even surpassed just, you know, being really good at your work, but you, there's a little bit of lore, I think maybe by now oh. with all the different things you've done. So I, yeah, have- I hate to hear that. Henry Ford used to say if, if any of his workers considered themselves an expert, it was time to get rid of them because they, <laughs> they stopped learning at that point. Well, let's get into some of this stuff that you're doing. I'll first tell folks about you. Today, today we have Jim Heffelfinger, and Jim's down in Arizona, and, and if it's wildlife, he's, he's just about done all of it. I mean, when I look at his bio, I'm like, wow. I mean, I, he's done so many different things. He's worked for state agencies, federal agencies, universities, private sector, all across the Southwest. He has degrees in wildlife management from University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and Texas A&M. And he's, I mean, he's been on TV for mule deer episodes. He, he's done loopholes, big game profiles. He's, he's been on Boone and Crockett country. He's a full research scientist. He's an author. I mean, this guy knows particularly deer up and down. And that's what we really want to talk to him today about is, is mule deer it is piques my interest most being a lifelong Westerner and, you know, they're an iconic species. And I think there's just a lot of misconception about what's going on with mule deer. And I thought nobody better to clear it up than, than Jim. How are you today, Jim? Thanks for being here. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you invited me. I, never mind talking about deer. <laughs> well, I'm glad you, we could finally pin you down because uh, yeah, I know you're a heck of a busy guy. You've been all over the place this summer. And if there's any, if there's anything to do with deer, it seems like you're, you have to show up. So I know I want I know to show up anyway. for you this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's jump in a little bit. Um, you know, we just want to basically give you a platform really, Jim. I mean, you know, deer to me are, Everybody sees them across the landscape, sees them in town. I think that's one of the things when I talk to people that I run into quite a bit, right? I, I could show you multiple 200-inch mule deer bucks right here in my town, but you go out in the woods, and they become a lot more scarce. And, and you talk to regular folks, and, and they say, oh, mule deer are fine. I see them all the time. Can't get them out of my yard. And, yeah. uh, you know as the chair, you're the chair of the mule deer working group for off, uh, for WAFWA, the Western association of fish and wildlife agencies. And you guys every year do a range wide status assessment, the black tailed mule deer. And I want you to just start us out. If you don't mind, just, just the general state of mule deer. Wait, 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 wait. I do. I need to do one thing. We need to talk about what we've been doing outside. I almost forgot. Jim, let's start with you. What have you been doing outside this summer? Uh, this summer, I've been going to a lot of meetings, but last week we took a, our annual family vacation to Wisconsin. I went to high school at the, um, in Horicon, Wisconsin, southeastern, um, right on the largest freshwater marsh in, in uh, United States. And um, we took some, me and my two boys took some kayaks out for a day and, and paddled up into the marsh and um, just glided around. Saw some birds I haven't seen in a while. <clears throat> just um, spent my high school years and the few years after fooling around in the marsh and hunting the edge of the marsh. So it was kind of fun to get back up in there again. Nice. I see Bill's, Bill's face kind of light up because of the famous place you went there. <laughs> Bill, what about yeah. you? Man, Horican, it's, it's like Chesapeake Bay or Stuttgart, Arkansas, you know, to, to duck hunters. It's, a, it's, it's an iconic place. So me, man, it, it's a hundred degrees here today. So, um, my outdoors has mostly been limited to taking care of some yard work, but squirrel season opens Saturday, 
and I've already scouted out a few hickory trees that are they're cutting on. Um, and then dove season opens uh, September one, uh, along with Canada goose. So my hunt, the hunting part of my year is ramping up fast, even though it's still hot. What about you, Aaron? The most hunted day in the whole year, September one, that dove season. So mm-hmm. watch out for for some pellets flying your way, maybe. <laughs> I, I have one in my chin from a dove hunt. Oh, see, I knew. Mm-hmm. I knew you could come up with something on that one. Uh, yeah, our, our archery season starts September 2. So I've been doing a little bit of uh, scouting with my kid. My kid has an archery tag for elk. I don't even have any archery tags, but uh, we're going to head out on the evening of the 1st and get set up and hopefully find some find some elk, and hopefully it's not too dang hot. It's been, mm-hmm. I don't know, that where I live, the all-time high is 97 degrees. And it didn't break the all-time high this year, but to tell you what it's been like, it's been it was 96 for three days in a row, and so if your all-time high is one degree higher than that, and it sits that way, usually we get about five, maybe ten degrees of 90 all summer. This year we've had probably 30, so really hot. Yeah. Not not as big a monsoons coming our way this year, so I'm ready for some cool down. My office is the hottest room in this house, and I sit here and sweat all day, so. Anyway, let's go back to my original question, Jim. Just kick us off with, with you know, generally how mule deer, black-tailed deer, what, what are we looking at? What are they thinking about? What's the status? Yeah, the thing, the thing about that question is that it's so general, and people always want to know how are mule deer doing, how are, how are black-tailed deer doing, and, and the truth is it's like, it's like asking a teacher, how's your class doing? You know, it's just a huge diversity. Some kids are doing really good. Some kids are, are failing. And, and it's the same when you look at a species over such a, law, a large distribution over Western North America. And so that's the reason that uh, the Mule Deer Working Group about 10, 11 years ago started putting together um, the status of Mule Deer and Black-tailed Deer, um, the range-wide status. And that's so that we could take have each expert, an expert in each agency, um, and that's 24 Western states and Canadian provinces and two territories in, in Canada that make up the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So there's one representative from each one of those jurisdictions then that writes a page or maximum two page on how mule deer and black-tailed deer are doing in their in their jurisdiction. And and that allows someone then to look individually at, at each of those jurisdictions and see how those deer are doing. And you can go spot check some of the places that you hunt or some places that you live or that you're interested in. Or you can just read through that document. It's about 30 or 40 pages, but easy reading and read through the document. And when you're done, you kind of get a feel for some of these populations are doing well and some of them aren't doing that well. And and then you some of them pop out as as, as doing pretty well and increasing in others you, you not only see that population may be declining or way below um, objective but you can read about why that is in that jurisdiction <clears throat> there's a lot of diversity in things that affect mule deer and black-tailed deer throughout north america one of the things i wrote down was how to summarize that how to sum- <laughs> you know and, and i read the you know the beginning and you talk about multiple states where they're doing fine multiple states where they're declining you know, what are the things that are impacting them? How, how do you kind of talk about the, the threats? I mean, when I know here in my state, Colorado, we have, you know, tons of development, whether it be energy development, housing development, you know, right in their winter habitat, lots of their migration paths. I mean, really, you know, obvious threats in some ways. And then we've had droughts and there's elk competition, a lot of different things. I mean, how do you, 
when you're talking to people and you have to give them kind of a state of the mule deer thinking, I mean, it sounds like you always start with, well, depends on exactly where and what, but you know, just, just walk through how you guys think of it, how you think of it with your partners, you know, and cause, cause obviously these deer don't necessarily go, I'm in Colorado and I'm in Wyoming. And you know, yep. that those state lines are a little bit goofy to even think about. Yeah. I think, um, it would be useful to, to back up and talk about when the mule deer working group was put together in 1998 and why, why did the directors of yeah. the Western agencies think we needed a bunch of biologists to, to get together and talk about mule deer? Um, because there's such a, kind of ubiquitous and in, in, in compared to other species, common and uh, iconic species in the West. But in the, what happened was in the late nineties, mule deer populations were in decline throughout the West in like almost all those jurisdictions. And that was unusual because we would have populations, normally mule deer populations in the Rocky mountain States that would be declining at some point. And then a few years later in the great plains, mule deer populations were declining while the Rocky mountain States increased and and that kind of diversity just had populations in different geographic areas bouncing around, going up and down. In the late 90s, for reasons we didn't understand at that point, it seemed like all mule deer populations were in decline. And so the directors uh, of the Western agencies and their constituents, they were hearing from their constituents, like, what's going on? There, there has to be one overriding thing that's making mule deer decline throughout the entire West. And we need to get some smart people together and, and try to figure out what that is. So the directors assembled a mule deer working group within the Western Association, which we call WAFWA. And that, that mule deer work, working group, so we've been together for 20 years. And we got together because of that late 90s kind of overall ubiquitous decline in, in mule deer. So we got together and we talked about um, some things. We, we developed a mission statement. We kind of made some structure to the working group to guide us in our work. And we started talking about, okay, so what kinds of things are affecting mule deer uh, throughout the West? And we, and we developed a, a short list of seven things that were affecting mule deer that we thought at the time. And those seven topics uh, were have been used for a long time by the working group because they're good general categories. We actually put a, we, we wrote a book in 2003 where we wrote a chapter on each one of those seven uh, topics. And, and that chapter then had citations to other research and other work at the time. Now it's 20 years old, but at the time it was a really good overview of, of the work that kind of informed all of these different things that were affecting mule deer. And, and then we had hired somebody who says, nobody can understand biologists when they write. We hired someone who was like an <laughs> outreach person. Uh, who, who writes for the general public. And and she took that book and developed uh, a magazine that was no citations, no jargon, just uh, here's here's these things that are affecting mule deer throughout the West. And those are such major topics that even though that's 20 years old uh, also, that's still useful because it still informs you on, on all of these uh, major things. <clears throat> those seven things that we talked about were, one was habitat change, um, and another one was weather relationships, and, and there's not a lot we can do about weather relationships, but but certainly weather drives reproduction, mortality, disease incidents, and all kinds of things. Um, also, harvest effects. We, we shoot a lot of mule deer. We shoot bucks and does. And so that's something that has the potential, usually if we want to, affect the deer population, whether it's demographics, shooting just bucks, and you're affecting buck to doe ratio and fawn to doe ratio. Or um, if you're shooting does, then you're, you're affecting the abundance of the population. You're regulating how many deer are on the landscape. You can lay off a doe permits and let that population increase, or you can turn them on and, and reduce that population if you need to, to be in relation to habitat. So those are the, um, those are the, the, 
the habitat changes, weather relationships, the harvest effects. We also recognize nutritional plane in the habitat throughout the West with changing through long-term habitat changes. And we can talk more in detail about, about these specific things and with some specific examples of how they're affecting mule deer, but also predator relationships. And that was on the top of everyone's mind. It's, you know, the predators are eating all the deer. And that's the obvious one that people grab onto because you have deer out there and then you have these other animals with big teeth and they're removing deer from the population. And so that's an obvious drain on the population. But in the late nineties, it, it's pretty unlikely that after um, coexisting with predators and mule deer since the Pleistocene or before, all of a sudden the predators rose up and started eating all the mule deer in the Western North America. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but it's still a topic that we wanted to explore and, and bring the latest science to. And, and, and we did. Also, elk and, and deer interactions is something that still comes up a lot. We've got generally rising elk populations in the last couple of decades, and in many cases, declining mule deer populations. So what's the relationship between those? And then the last one was herd health, diseases, and parasites. Those seven major categories kind of formed our uh, a lot of the products that we put out to, to inform. Um, and, and our goal was, was multiple. It was as a working group. We wanted to provide good, science, provide good scientific information for the administration, for directors, for commissioners making management decisions. We also wanted to share more information among biologists, which you assume is happening, but not necessarily. Um, in mule deer, it does now. We share, all the mule deer people in the West are sharing information constantly. We have for a while, but at the beginning, and it's still the case with some species, every biologist kind of works in their state or province, and they don't do a lot of talking with um with other people in, in the neighboring province. And this mule deer working group brought everybody together and we became friends and, and, and communicated all the time offline and, and during meetings. And so we wanted to communicate to the decision makers, communicate with each other and communicate to the public, get information out that helps help the public live at, like that status, um, range wide status review. So people know what's going on, um, provide information to them. That's pretty impressive. And those topics, when you ask a biologist, well, what's affecting mule deer populations? You often often get, well, a lot of things. You know, it's death by a thousand cuts. And they start listing off all of these general things like I just listed off. And that's the answer to your question. And it's very unsatisfying because you still don't know what's affecting mule deer populations. They just listed a whole bunch of things. But um, if we talk about examples, um, and I talked about usually deer populations in different parts of the country rising and falling at different times in different places, and, and that's because it wasn't one ubiquitous thing throughout the West that was causing a mule deer decline in the 90s. It was really just that they happened to synchronize at that time. And so we have, like in the desert southwest, drought is what really knocks our populations back. We get 70 degrees in rainfall in December and January. And things are pretty lush. There's forbs everywhere. Um, browse plants are growing leaders in January. And then we get into May and June. And the monsoon rains are supposed to start in July. But in May and June, everything's really dry and crispy. So that's our nutritional bottleneck in the southwest deserts, not in the middle of winter. We're not trying to get deer fattened up in the fall and have them survive on winter range through December and January, February. We're hoping they get really fat in December and January with those winter rains and so that they have enough fat reserves to squeak through that uh, nutritional bottleneck in May and June until the summer rains come in July and they have something to eat again. So it's really completely flipped from what people in most of mule deer range think about. So when we get a couple of years of drought, which we did in Arizona in the last three or four years, 
this past year has been pretty good, but prior to that, we had horrible drought. And you would go out there and mule deer had ribs showing. Um, they were all sunken in. You know, most of the fawns are not surviving on nothing but just hot gravel and crispy plants. And then a lot more of the adults are going to die. So you have deer populations in the Southwest declining during those droughts. Well, oftentimes those years with low precipitation in the Southwest are also years with low precipitation in the form of snow in the Rocky Mountain states. So those are mild winters in the Rocky Mountain states. So those same years we're experiencing drought, Rocky Mountain states might be experiencing not much snowfall and pretty mild winters and their populations are doing really well. And then like last year, we experienced incredible snowfall two, uh, two to 400% in some parts of Northern Utah. They reported some local areas of 4,000% their normal snowpack. I mean, incredible record-breaking snowfall and harsh winter this year. And those populations um, in those areas then plummet. None of the fawns born will survive under those conditions and, and a whole bunch of the adults will die under those conditions. So you can yeah. see how when biologists start rattling off all these things, it's not like they're all happening a little bit. It's just geographically, depending on what ecoregion you're in, you've got different things affecting those populations. Sure. Is that changing the reproductive cycle in Arizona, Jim? I mean, you, you know, it seems like maybe the rut would change, the fawning would change. I mean, maybe you could speak to that a little. If that happened over and over, you'd think they would respond to it. Yes, they have to. So in the in the northern states, then um, that peak of the fawn drop is is like mostly June, late May and June when mule deer in the Rocky Mountain states. And, and that's so wow. that they can drop those fawns when they have maximum nutrition in May and June. They're they're up in that high elevation country. It's just lush. There's food everywhere for them. If they in, in Arizona, the desert mule deer around Tucson drops their fawns in May and June, they'd be dropping them on gravel with like no vegetation yeah. until a couple of weeks into July when the summer rain started. So that that whole reproductive cycle and fawn drop has shifted in our desert mule deer in southern Arizona. The peak of the fawn drop is August 8th because that's wow. about five weeks after the summer rain started. Green vegetation is up. The does have a lot of food to eat to produce milk. The young have um, fawning cover so that the coyotes don't see them. And then they've got food to kind of wean themselves off of. <clears throat> so that biologically all gets adjusted based and it's all based on fawn survival. And so the deer, they can they have some flexibility when they breed. And any of them that are breeding and dropping their fawns in May and June, those fawns are not going to survive. And there's some genetic component to the timing of reproduction. So through time, natural selection selects the, the time of the fawn drop to coincide with that local environmental conditions when they're maximum. And, and you see that in, in the mule deer fawn drop north and south. It, it, this reminds me so much being in the southeast, you know, our, our turkey populations had been growing, growing, growing for 30 years, by 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And now, now for several years, they've been kind of dropping off in most of our states and, and the more they study the more they're getting down to even on a county level at times there are myriad reasons and you have to really focus small and that's kind of surprising me with mule deer because i always thought of them as this broad ranging thing mm -hmm. that can just go where it's good and yep. obviously i don't know what i'm talking about so this <laughs> is interesting <laughs> Yep. And so that's why it's unsatisfying when biologists give you these general answers, but it really depends on um, the individual area. And then, and then many areas, it's not one thing that's affecting deer in this geographic area. Like I portrayed it, you have other issues in the, in the Pacific Northwest, you've got like an adenovirus um, hemorrhagic disease. We've got 
uh, what we call EHD, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, which normal and blue tongue, which has not been common in the northern plains for mule deer in, in recent years because of just drying conditions. It's hotter and it's drier than it ever was. They're, they're starting those midges that spread the disease are starting to creep up there. So it's a very dynamic thing, as nature always is. Things are, things are changing through time. Jim, how fast are they responding to things like that? I mean, so, so say if, you know, you had a great, you know, May and June, it's not going to change one year, but I mean, how many years is this change taking? Because that it's, it's like anywhere kind of in the Southwest, at least where I live, not too far from Arizona, it's, you know, May and June are typically some of our hottest, driest times. And then that July, August time comes along is, you know, how quick are they changing to that stuff? Because some years it's totally different. Yeah, the um, the strength of the fawn crop is really more governed on um, winter precipitation, October through March, and, and probably more important December and, and January, because that's fattening. They're getting pregnant in December. Um, our, the peak of the mule deer rut, I didn't mention that, is like around Christmas. It's the last two weeks in, in desert mule deer is the last two weeks in December. So they're and even in the northern states, they're rutting in November, late. No, I mean, the northern part of, of Arizona and the southwest deserts, they're rutting in November. So those are pregnant in December and January. And if we if they got a lot of nutrition to start building up fat reserves in December and, and um, January, February, then they can carry that fawn through that genetic bottleneck in the summer and they're in better conditions. They can't carry that fawn all the way through till about the time they're gonna drop it and then get nutrition from the summer rains and do anything with it. It's way too late. They need all that nutrition while they're building that fawn or those twin fawns. So the winter rainfall is more important. Um, And when the summer rainfall comes, then that provides some information for lactation, maybe to finish the fawn out and and some fawning cover and, and that sort of thing. But when you're talking about like, if you're in a drop for several years, and then you get a wet winter condition, which is great for mule deer and great for reproduction. Those those does will be in good physical condition and they'll have a lot of fawns. But now if you have no summer rains and those fawns are dropped in really dry drought conditions, that's obviously not gonna, not gonna build population. So it's important that you have some of these consecutive wet periods of mostly winter rainfall, but you've got to have some summer, at least average summer rainfall in between to, for lactation and to carry out that whole fawn. But if you have a good fawn crop one year, then when you come up to the next winter, those fawns are going to be yearlings in the Southwest. Those yearling does don't, they're very low reproductive rate. They're just nutritionally, there's not so much nutrition as there is in, in Northern environments. And so those, those yearlings reproduce at a very low level. And if you have a really good year, that second year, a higher percentage of them will reproduce, but not all of them. And then if you have a third year, that first pulse of fawns, all of those females are now at full reproductive age in the third year, and they're all cranking out fawns. And that's where you see deer populations really pick up and really hit kind of an inflection point. But now you're asking for three consecutive years of, of like above average rainfall, and that's a lot to ask in, in the Southwest. But you do need these multiple years to take advantage of a whole bunch of female fawns being born one year and then doing something with them really two years later. Yeah. Wow. The, I think, I think Kevin Monteith was telling me once, Jim, and it, it, I'd be curious to revisit this, that, you know, like all the potential antler growth of a mule deer is determined in utero, like the conditions that the mother oh. has while she's pregnant with it. And, and if, and if she doesn't have good conditions, like the antler growth is totally limited in that, you know, buck's life. 
revisit yeah. that for me because that was fascinating. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's not that complete. It's like a, not not all of their um, potential is determined, but there's a maternal Something like impact. that. I may be getting it wrong. I don't want to misquote Kevin. No, no, you're no, you're right. I think it just overstated. It's not, not like everything has to do with the maternal environment, but the maternal environment will um, set that buck off ahead of its peers. If the if the doe while she's pregnant, and there's even a grand maternal, and there's even some connection with the grandmother hmm. of the buck having some influence in how that how the the quality of that buck and the potential to grow antlers but when that buck's born it's, it's nutrition and it's the genetics he happens to get with some maternal impact that's that's discoverable that's um detectable through research like monteith and it's so it's bizarre to think how can a buck's antler size how can he have a head start or an advantage over his peers in the same cohort, depending on what his mother or grandmother ate. But there's in the in the genetic code, there's um, a methylation process that turns on genes and shuts off genes. And depending on the conditions the does and the grandmother was in, it can it doesn't change the genetic code. Their gene their genetics are the same, but it can turn genes on and off, and that's what's creating a multi generational effect. Um, you can turn genes on, and if that gene's turned on, that can be heritable. That can be passed on to offspring. The fact that that same gene is turned on or off can be passed on. It's it's called epigenetics, and it's just, it's really fascinating. And it's really this is the last decade I think they've learned a lot about that. Wow. You know, we can talk about one. We've talked about like disease and and uh, rainfall. But the really the most important overriding thing impacting mule deer populations throughout the West is long-term habitat changes. Deer are, are, are they love disturbance of habitat, um, not in a bad way, but deer in a forested environment, they have to have that forest canopy opened up. So sunlight comes down to the forest floor, creates shrubs and creates forbs. That's what they're eating. They're not eating tree bark. They're not eating pine needles and they're not eating grass. They're eating shrubs the leaves and sticks of shrubs and they're eating the forbs, which are the broadleaf weeds that are on the ground that are, are not grass. And when you have an, a mature forest with a closed canopy and nothing but dark shade or a little bit of dappled light, you're not producing a lot of shrubs and a lot of food for deer. And you can often walk through those forests and there's not much below your waist. It's all pretty clean. Yeah. That's not good deer habitat. Deer need disturbed forests, a little forestry, some openings, a wind throw to knock a big tree over to let a bunch of sunlight in. These little openings that create a lot of deer food in the forest. And so they're an animal of, of uh, disturbance in the forest environment, but also in shrublands. If you have um, plants, some of the important shrubs, they get older and older. And not only do they grow, the tops of them grow out of the reach of what deer can eat, but they, they get thicker and ranker and the 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 stems are thicker and more woody they have more lignin yeah. and fiber and when you disturb those bushes with fire depending on the the ecosystem with fire or mechanical means and they grow back they grow back young and tender and more nutritious and more yeah. digestible and so that disturbance is is important and long term we've had a lot of forested areas certainly that have not had the disturbance through fire um, and, and other means that we have that we used to have um, years ago when, when deer populations were perhaps more abundant and even in the um even in the rangeland area without some disturbance on the shrubs sometimes in the form of fire you don't have that rejuvenation of that shrub layer 
then you have other and so that has been a long-term change that degrades the number of deer that can be held per square mile but then there's other environments like i was at uh, the mule deer enhancement summit in nevada last week where i spoke and some other people came in and spoke and we went on a field trip the last day and we've been talking in the mule deer working group for years about cheatgrass invasion which is a non-native non-native to north america non-native grass that it invades uh, sagebrush communities and and sagebrush communities used to have some bunch of grasses some smaller native grasses but this invades as a carpet of grass that's not very valuable for for wildlife and then that cheat grass just dries out into this sea of brown dry grass and now someone flicks a cigarette where there's a, a lightning bolt on a, a peak and that that cheat grass just burns like wildfire literally through all of those sagebrush communities kills most of the sagebrush uh, bushes and what ones are left there's going to be a fire another five or six years it's going to take them out and you have these huge sagebrush communities which are what deer rely on in the winter they come down from these high elevations they come down to these huge sagebrush flats and that sagebrush isn't fantastic food but it's good enough to get them through the winter it holds them through the winter kind of a maintenance food they go down there they survive the winter they go back up into the the high country and you have huge areas giant areas of, of Nevada in particular, where these sagebrush communities, because of this increasing fire cycle, increasing frequency of fire, increasing intensity because it's new fuel, have just completely changed hundreds of square miles of, of mule deer winter range with sagebrush to nothing but pure grassland. And the mule deer come down and there's a foot of snow on the smashed down grass. There's a foot of snow and there's nothing sticking up outside of the snow. There's nothing to eat, literally nothing to eat. And that can change in a year, in a single year. You're going to have huge herds yeah. coming down into those winter ranges. And there really is nothing but snow. There's, and there's nothing to paw through the snow to get. And so we've had, we have that happening in a lot of areas of uh, Nevada is, is the biggest state where that's happening. Utah and so other states throughout the West with cheatgrass invasion. And it, it's making, it, it's making huge, huge areas of really good mule deer winter ranges disappear completely. Yeah. One thing you said there, Jim, is that the cheatgrass comes back after the burn too. Exactly. And, and so, and so not only did you have too much, then it burns and then it's all just that. And then it's, yeah. it's underneath and Yeah. It's a, and, yeah. It's a horrible cycle. Now on our field trip, there was some really encouraging things that, that um, Nevada has always had a real aggressive uh, habitat restoration branch. And, and they've tried for decades, they tried all kinds of things and a lot of it failed, but they're trying and they're trying to, to see what they can do about the cheatgrass and sagebrush. And, and they're, they've got some really new innovative things that they've, um, they're determined they can do, they can spray a pre-emergent um, herbicide, which won't allow the cheatgrass seeds to germinate in the spring. Mm. And so they put down this layer of cheatgrass doesn't germinate. I think they may leave it a year and I don't know if they do it again, but they can come back in and they can drill seed um, other native plants and forage plants and they can drill, drill it down deeper than that herbicide layer. So they do germinate because it's below that herbicide layer. And they've, they, they're starting. It's just, it's something they're just, they're just getting into, but they're starting to see some areas that, all these natives are coming back and the cheatgrass is not germinating coming back. So there's a whole bunch of really smart people that are working and have been working for a long time. And they're, they're, they're on the cusp of finding some things that you, you can do at scale. You know, anybody can go into a little study area and, you know, graze all the cheatgrass gone and say, well, look, we didn't have any fire because we grazed it all down in this, this a quarter acre. 
but that's you've got to be able to scale it up yeah. to the state of Nevada, for example. And they've got some things that are aerially applied that they're going to be able to scale to large areas. So there's some um, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. There's some optimistic some reasons for optimism. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Carly Kutnick from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories of hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast where you'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. I want to kind of go back to woods because you hit on something that that my whitetail and wild turkey background kind of makes me, reminds me of, because here, uh, whether it's people with properties or looking at national forests and all, we all love big, huge expanses of virgin hardwoods. I mean, that's beautiful stuff, yet it's really not all that great for most of our wildlife. And it sounds like you have some of the same issues out West is... Mm -hmm. I mean, we're slowly getting more people on board with the idea of creating more openings and doing mm-hmm. more controlled burns and all, but it's expensive and people are scared of it and no one likes change. That's what our, we as humans, I guess, we hate change and we want to keep it just like currently. Are y'all having any success changing that mindset on your in forestry out there? I think with these, you know, people say, well, you need more fire. Haven't we had a whole lot of fire? <laughs> and we have. Unfortunately, these giant catastrophic fires burn way hotter than the, you know, the, the natural fire cycle and the natural, the way fire naturally played a role in the environment historically is not what you're seeing here with these catastrophic fires. But still, it is these huge fires. They're, they're not all scorching the earth. Um, there's areas of these big fires where they burn really hot. They go up a steep slope or some other reason where they're burning slow and hot. And that will burn all the organic layer out of the soil. It'll burn the, all of the seeds that are in the seed bed. And that will be pretty sterile for a long time until it can start building up some organic matter, getting some seeds falling on it. But, but those big fires, they're still burning in a mosaic of unburned areas in some of the wetter lowlands, lightly burned areas in some areas, moderately burned areas, high, and then scorched in some spots. And so they're still burning this mosaic, and that is um, improving deer habitat for sure. We've had a couple examples um, right outside of Tucson. It's a, a white-tailed deer example, but a mountain range right outside of Tucson, about 60% of the mountain range burned. And the browse community came back like gangbusters. It looked fantastic. And the whitetail population that we monitor every year came way. You can look at a graph and the whitetail population just takes off. The mountain lion population takes off after the whitetail population. We start we start harvesting twice as many mountain lions in that population on the heels of that prey mm. population increasing by a third. Um, and so we see we see the effects of fire, even though those were big kind of catastrophic fires, we see some real beneficial effects of those those big fires. It's just, you know, in some cases, people lose their homes, they lose their cabins, they lose their they lose lives. And, and none of that is none of that is good. But it, it's a it's a mixed bag. We 
as far as forestry practices, there's there's certainly an awareness that we need to open more and more canopies. The difficulty is doing that um, at a big enough scale. You can go in, and, you can open up some forests, but it has to be part of the natural um, management paradigm of land management agency or, or a timber company if they own tons of land, or it's not going to happen. Having biologists coming in, getting some money for a wildlife benefit opening that's pretty expensive and, 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 and pretty localized. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Jim, I, well, first I, I'm seeing kind of that, like with the dead trees in my, you know, local forests, they're actually, because so many have died, there is a lot more forbs and, you know, understory growing, which (laughs) even though you just about can't walk through there because there's so much down stuff and it's pretty gnarly, but beetle kill, beetle kill is doing the same thing. It's opening those canopies and killing trees and it's, it's improving, not that it's a good thing, but it's improving deer habitat. I mean, we have to talk about all this stuff. There's no all bad and all good. Um, there's anytime you can disturb that forest, you're probably improving deer habitat. Yeah. The thing I wanted to ask you about, Jim, is just deer evolution. Like, how did we get, you know, just for the layperson, we got blacktails, we got Sika, we got, we got all these different deer. Like, how the heck did all that happen? Is it climactic conditions, you know, and just different yeah. ranges? And and then, you know, you, you focus a lot on the blacktail and the, and, the, and the mule deer, maybe even just that distinction for folks. Yeah. It, I, I love that topic. We, we have deer didn't evolve in North America. They evolved um, over in China and in like the Pliocene. So we're talking about older than 40 million years ago that deer evolved in, in, um, in Asia and maybe Europe. And we've got the first record of deer in North America about um, 7 million years ago. We've got this animal called Eocolius gentry rorum. And it had antlers that looked like miniature elk antlers that went backwards like roe deer, an awful lot like roe deer mm. antlers. Um, the fossils look like that seven million years ago, which one part I find fascinating is genetically of all the European deer that aren't in the U.S., the roe deer that looks an awful lot like the seven million year old fossil antlers, the roe deer is genetically the closest related to the North American deer. So I think that's fascinating that the seven million year old fossil has antlers like a roe deer, the European roe deer, and that all our deer are genetically the most closely related to that animal. So we've got this this uh, Eocolius that came through. And then about 5 million years ago, we have evidence of three kinds of deer in North America. We have Oticolius, and, and that far back, that's as much as we can divide it. We don't know if it looked like a mule deer. It was it was a basal animal that developed later into whitetail and mule deer is what it was 5 million years ago. And then there was a one called a Brezia, which its whole skeleton looked just like a mule deer, and the fossils are indistinguishable from mule deer, but the antlers had palms like moose, had little miniature moose antlers, and yet it was very Oticolius-like. Wow. Um, and, and then the the, um, the the third species that was in North America was a um, some thought a mountain deer, um, Navajo cerus, but now that seemed to be um, um, probably an Oticolius and not really a, a Navajo cerus. The um, Oh, the third deer was the Eocolius. So that Eocolius, the earliest fossil is 7 million years ago. And then by 5 million, we still have those three deer, Eocolius, Oticolius, and Brezia, walking around in the landscape, mid-sized deer in North America. The other two went extinct, and we have Oticolius in North America. So at some point, 
probably because of um, glaciers coming in and dividing an eastern population and a western population. We have the development probably three million years ago of whitetail in the east and mule deer in the in the west. So they had to be they had to be separated for a long time to develop some of those those differences. And we had so many glacial periods between the Pliocene and the early Pleistocene. We talk about the end of the Pleistocene and we had this this um, glacial maximum about 18,000 years ago. And everybody just kind of thinks of the ice age, but throughout the Pleistocene from 2 million years ago to 38 million years ago, there was a whole bunch of different ice ages, the glaciers coming in, melting again, glaciers coming in, melting again for millions of years. And so there's no way to untangle at what point whitetail and mule deer might've been separated. But obviously at some point, that basal oticoleus was separated into eastern whitetail and, and a western deer. And then at some point later in a glacial period, blacktails seemed to be isolated on the western Pacific coast from mule deer and developed their genetic differences and their physical differences. And some genetic work we did identified the western Oregon and Washington as the area with the highest blacktail deer genetic diversity. And the geneticists will tell you, if you sample across the landscape and find a focal point of high genetic diversity, that indicates that was the refugium during the ice age. That's where they were isolated. And then they expanded out from that focal area and lost genetic diversity as they expanded out from it. So it seems like Oregon, Washington was a place where blacktails were probably most recently isolated from, from mule deer on the West Coast. And then the glaciers receded and all those animals come back and the ranges touch and in some cases interbreed where they where they do get together. I was going to ask you about interbreeding too. I mean, does that happen? I mean, it's still, and, and I, yeah. I can't imagine a deer sitting there going, hmm, that's not, that's not necessarily a whitetail or a bump, you know. I mean, if, if there was a female. But I can picture a deer saying he didn't care. Yeah, I can picture that. I guess I don't know why that's easier to picture, but <laughs> yeah, any place that whitetail and mule deer are coexist on the same range, they've they've documented hybrids between whitetail and mule deer. It's a lot uh, less common than most people think. And there's a lot of people that see a funny mule deer, or they see a mule deer that doesn't have the dichotomous fork branches on its G2s, the first tines, and it looks like a big whitetail rack, and they say it looks like a hybrid. In most cases, not. It's a two-year-old mule deer that hasn't forked yet. Um, so it's it's less common than people think, but it occurs everywhere they get together in, in whitetail mule deer. And we also did a, um, a genetic study in the Pacific Northwest along the Cascade Mountains in Washington and Oregon and Northern California, and and documented genetically the hybridization between blacktails on the west on the coast and mule deer on the on the east side of the the cascades and there's a lot more of that hybridization they both go up in the cascades blacktails from the west mule deer from the the east and intermingle and there's what we call the hybrid swarm there's just a big swarm of hybridization along that that mountain crest hmm. between blacktails and mule deer in that case Okay, we, we've talked about history. I want I, to look forward for a minute because I, I grew up at a time and a place where if we saw a deer track, we talked about it in church. Now I can kill three a day from October through the end of January. I mean, <laughs> it, it's crazy. And But that whole time growing up in the 70s and 80s, I would read the outdoor magazines and books, and it's all about hunting mule deer out west and, and more mule deer than elk, it seemed like. That may just be my young eyes but uh mule deer were the thing and that's that's mm -hmm. what i'd always read about and obviously we're in a different place now but 
with y'all learning so much more as scientists and biologists and, and the agencies in charge, what would you say to people like me who would be interested in hunting out west sometime in the future or, or, or what it looks like? How, do, how does the future look in your opinion? Yeah, I think mule deer are more sensitive to human disturbance than whitetail. Whitetail seem to thrive. I mean, they're in the cities. They do just fine in the cities. And and mule deer are a little less sensitive or a little more sensitive to human disturbance and habitat disturbance. And they're, um, um, but some people will paint a picture. Valerius Geis wrote an article in the 80s, I think, that, that said mule deer are going extinct and that kind of thing. And that that's um, that's a little over the top. It, being a little sensitive is different than us losing mule deer. There's there's too many people that care too much about mule deer and mule deer habitat and are working hard. And, and the key is just going to be just um, preserving a place for them to live, is working on habitat. If, if we can retain habitat and, like I'm talking about, tackle some of these big issues like cheatgrass and sagebrush communities, beating that back, trying to control issues like that. If we work on the habitat and maintain the habitat for mule deer in the future, we're going to have mule deer um, populations. And and they're going to, throughout that time, increase and decrease with these environmental conditions. But we they have to have a place to live. They have to have habitat. We need to focus on habitat and preserving habitat and then let environmental fluctuations do what they're going to do. And there's not a lot of control we have over that as long as we preserve a place for them to live. How are you guys doing on time? Because I, I'm sitting here looking at all the things I wanted to ask you, Jim, and I'm like, man. No, I, I'm fine. <laughs> we're getting there. Bill, yeah. you doing okay if we run a little over? Absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, Jim, let's talk. You know, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about CWD on this podcast. You know, it's a – boy, you, you kind of – every hunter you talk to kind of has a different theory and what's happening and what's going to happen and – you know, I'd like to just open the floor to you. I mean, I think the perceptions change. I think folks are now recognizing it. Um, I'm still surprised about how many, you know, people I talk to that don't test their animals, mm -hmm. um, particularly in Colorado and Wyoming. People, people we know even <laughs> who know it's a who know it's an issue and know this well enough don't necessarily test their animals. I feel like I test every you know elk or deer that I get now. Um, I've I've sat with some people we could all name as well and they said hey if you're in an area i'd get it tested and i wouldn't feed my yeah. family you know cwd positive and and so from then on that was about eight ten years ago that i had that conversation i've tested what 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 are you hearing in your world you know i mean it, it, one of the theories that i would particularly like to unpack is that maybe it's there's always been some percentage out there and it's just maybe expressing itself a little bit more now and it's just you know, more people are talking and there's more news. And so it just seems more prevalent and, yeah. you know, and there is hot spots, but, you know, maybe just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly not true that it was always here. You can just look at the spread of that disease and it's not just people starting to test. And so now they're finding it. Um, you, you can, you can just see by the pattern of spread that this is, um, this is a disease spread and not a, an artifact of people sampling. And it wasn't all over. They can go back and, and test historical samples and, and it's not there. And, and we used to, in the, in, in the early years, it's, it's not like people were denying its importance. We didn't really didn't know in the seventies and eighties and it kind of reared up in the nineties. We weren't sure what it meant as far as affecting the population. We weren't sure what it meant as far as human uh, health. 
And so we've, we, the experts will recommend that you test it. And if it's positive, you don't eat it and, and don't feed it to your family. I think that's still a personal, uh, personal decision. We've got, I mean, how many tens of thousands, I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands of CWD positive deer in the Rocky Mountain States that have been eaten in the last 40 years and no evidence of, um, of any kind of human illness or so I think it's a, I think it's just a personal decision. Someone has to get the facts and, and weigh the facts for themselves. I'm not sure I would throw a deer out. Venison is so important to me. I haven't had the opportunity. I've never had a positive deer. So I haven't been in that position where I had to make that decision, but it, I'm not sure it would automatically, it would depend on how much venison I had in the freezer. I'm not sure I would automatically <laughs> throw it out, but that's my personal opinion that's not a recommendation you, you don't spend much time reading deer forums or something because yeah. if you get on them holy cow <laughs> i know i know i don't friend and there's a reason i don't stay on the deer forum much yeah so i know it's a personal it's a personal decision the the experts recommend you should not eat a, a positive deer and they're they're saying that out of caution it's not a bad thing they're saying that out of caution we have some other TSEs, transmissible spongiform encephalopathies like like mad cow disease and like scrapies and um, well scrapies it, it hasn't been found in humans but that mad cow disease did jump from cattle in England did jump from cattle to humans. I remember. Um, we've got Creutzfeldt Jakob disease that's just a human form. It's always been a human form, and we've got Kuru, which was a rare one in indigenous tribes that they've. They got the local people to stop eating the brains of the elders and, and and got rid of that in that community. But they haven't found any, and a lot of people have looked, and they've not found any evidence of increased rate of Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, the human form, uh, that's related to people eating venison. There's some individual cases that, you know, some, some guy got CJD, they call it, and you know, he ate venison all the time. And so, you know, the, the news story pops up and everybody's concerned. But when you look at the science, um, you don't see a, a connection there. But the experts are recommending nobody eats a, a CWD positive deer because it, 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 there's no guarantee it's not going to happen sometime in the future and, and break that, that species barrier from deer to humans. And the more humans we have eating and exposing themselves to those prions, the more chance you're going to have. It's just a numbers game that something funny, something weird is going to happen in one individual case. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying people should eat CWD positive deer. Um, the experts recommend not. I'm just saying me personally, I'm not sure. I, I'll, I'll see how much venison I have in the freezer. Maybe just the back traps. I don't know. Jim, I, I have a test question because I, at least here currently um, in our CWD areas, well, they test every deer if you take it to a processor or if you're going to process yourself, you can drop off the head. Um but I know a lot of people, and it always concerns me, especially when I'm processing my own, it's going to be a couple of weeks usually before yeah. I learn anything. And I guess right now there's still no live test where mm -hmm. biologists can go into an area and sample deer. And, and my gosh, if there were some kind of a quick litmus test mm -hmm. to tell a hunter in a reasonable time, positive or negative, yeah. is anything getting closer on any either of those? I have not. No, I have had not. They can, when you take it in the processor, they can test it faster than two weeks, but it's a volume thing. They're getting tens of thousands of samples at the same time. So the test didn't, didn't take that long, but processing them all does. And that's an issue that I don't know how you get around. And then you talk about 
the, um, the live test or instant test, that's one of the highest priorities of prion researchers and CWD researchers right now for obvious reasons. Um, that's one of their highest priorities. And when I'm in these national meetings and I hear the, the wildlife disease experts and the, and the disease experts talking about it, that's always at the top of the list of what they're talking about and, and what advances they've made in getting something like that. But to my knowledge, there, there isn't anything. There's biopsies that people have taken when they translocate deer tonsil biopsies of the tonsils in the throat, um, rectal biopsies of some tissue inside the rectum, just a little bit. And those were um, pre-mortem or before death kind of te live tests. Um, but I think that if I remember the numbers right, they only detect like one of the rectal or the tonsil biopsies detected like 60% of the known positives. It's just not a, it's not a very, I mean, the 60% is pretty close to a coin flip. Um, yeah. So, so there really isn't a solution yet, but there's an obvious advantage to that. There's a lot of people working on it. I can't remember who, but some, I feel like someone was telling me a blood test, maybe uh, we're getting closer on maybe. Yes. Other. Right. There is a, there is a blood test, um, that I've heard people use, but it's, and I don't know how effective it is, but it must not be effective enough or, you know, everybody be doing it. <laughs> And, and so you're right. I heard about that and I don't know many details about it, but it's obviously not, um, it's not, you know, greatly effective. Everybody be using it. What about predators, Jim, then other, you know, fun rumor, or, or maybe there's some truth to it. I mean, that I've seen some stuff that seems somewhat at least scientific with some scientific integrity about mountain lions, particularly, I think they did a study here in Colorado outside of Boulder. It was like a highly populated area with mountain lions and they're finding out that there was a prevalence for the mountain lions to take infected deer. Can you mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, there's, um, there's in general, there's two kinds of predators when you class them by how they kill things. Mountain lions are ambush predators, so they, they lay it wait and then they just pounce on an animal and kill it like with one bite. Um, other animals are coursing or chasing predators like wolves, where there's a, a group of them will chase and it's not one bite. I mean, they finally pull the animal down and kill it. So the chasing predators like wolves are going to kill the, the, those animals that are impaired, whether it's CWD, which, which will impair them or a, or a bad leg or something. And those chasing predators are going to weed out a disproportionate number of the sick and the weak, um, ambush predators, not as much because they're just gonna pounce on an animal at a water hole. It doesn't matter if that animal limping or not when it gets to the water hole, it's just standing there. And so, the, so with mountain lions, you wouldn't expect that kind of effect. But there has been, I think I'm aware of about four different studies looking at whether predators are taking a disproportionate number of CWD positive animals. In a few cases, they found that, that predators are taking a disproportionate number. So then um, a lot of uh, predator protectionist groups and individuals who feel that way have tried to use that and say, well, look, we need to, we need to stop killing all predators and leave them out there in the landscape because they're going to clean up CWD for us. But there's a, a couple studies that haven't just looked at the the uh, whether predators take a disproportionate number of CWD positive animals, but they've looked at population wide has prevalence rates, prevalence of CWD in deer and elk. Has that been changed at all with high predator populations or low predator populations? And they have not found any kind of population level effect of predators cleaning up CWD. So I'm always the one that looks at population level effects, not some um, detail and, uh, you know, some detail like, like the incidence of, 
a proportion of what predators take. I want to know, are they really doing anything? Not whether the little detail over here is, is true or not. Yeah, that's a, uh, just hearing it in Colorado, that's a fascinating one. And, you know, you, you got to wonder the genesis, as you mentioned, where, where, where that's coming from. What are the other issues that we haven't talked about, Jim? And I've got some, a couple goofy questions to ask you before I let you go here, but I, but I want to give you a little bit more of a platform just you know, as hunters, as, as people who care about mule deer, what else should we be thinking about, you know, up to date? Uh, there's one new thing that it, that um, researchers are looking at, and that's the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes uh, COVID-19. Yeah. And there's been, so there's been quite a few surveys uh, um, by USDA, APHIS is, has done, they have a three-year project in the eastern U.S. looking at whitetails and looking at whether deer, white-tailed deer, have been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They're two years into that three-year project, and they're finding a pretty high incidence of antibody levels, elevated antibody levels in white-tailed deer in the east, that um, antibodies from the SARS-CoV-2 virus that, that causes COVID-19. And the deer are not getting COVID-19. They're not visibly sick. But when you pull the blood and you test it, they've been exposed to it. And they've been exposed to it from humans because they've looked through time and they find that when the when they had uh the 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 delta virus was surging in humans a couple months later when they look at their samples of deer the delta virus is surging in in deer and then it goes back down and then omicron virus comes up in humans and a a month or two or a few months later omicron is what they're picking up in white-tailed deer so it's really obvious that they're picking it up from humans they're not sure how um, I was going to say, how does that happen? I mean, I mean, you within six feet very often, as they you're say. You're pretty good at social distancing when I'm out trying to find them. Um, and nobody really knows the answer to that. They're talking about maybe exposure to human waste, maybe garbage. Um, some of the initial data showed that it wasn't even a higher incidence near the urban areas, which is shocking. I'm not yeah. sure if that's still true now that they have a bigger sample size. But in some areas, 40% of the white-tailed deer had elevated antibodies. They've been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And so having elevated antibodies, they're not getting sick. It's not affecting the deer population. So, you know, what's the big deal um, with with them having elevated antibodies? The problem is they they can have that virus in the deer population. They can catch it from humans. They can spread it from deer to deer, which has been shown, through the deer population. And as it's spread, just like in the human population, as that virus is spread from person to person, it mutates a little bit um, to try to beat the human immune system. It's, it's constantly evolving to try to get... Um, away from being killed by the human immune system. So it's constantly evolving into different and different and different forms in humans. We know that because we have all of these different variants and 1.3 B, 4, 7, all these different variants as it evolves, as it goes through humans. It's doing the same thing in the deer population in a separate pool, a separate disease pool from uh, the human population. So it's going from deer to deer and it's mutating as it goes from deer to deer, and as it spreads through the deer population, independent of humans, the human immune system is not keeping up with those versions because they're separate. And so it's not, the human immune system is not co-adapting with those changes. So you might have something in the deer population that has now evolved to be very different from what it started out to be. And then if that reinfects humans, it could be so different that it could be um, a, a real health concern. It could be a real significant different virus. That's what experts 
worry about. They call it spillback, where the deer population gets the virus, it mutates a little, and then it spills back into the human population. That's what keeps disease experts up at night. There's been three or four, there's been four cases of spillback from deer back into humans. None of those cases have caused serious illness. Person got COVID-19 and, and, um, and, and survived it. So it wasn't that How'd serious. How'd they figure that out? Oh, genetically, they're looking at they're looking at the the um, the genotype of the virus, and so they have all these samples from deer, and they can they can look at genetics of the virus in deer, and then they're always looking at the genetics of the virus in humans. That's how they're naming these variants, genetic just genetic variants, and so they see this variant that changed, and they find it in the deer population. And it's not in the human population at all. And all of a sudden, there's one person that picked up a roadkill that has this deer variant that changed mm. in the deer population. So genetically, they can track that. And they have these huge graphs. They're called dendograms. You know, they look like branches, genetic branches. And, and there's all these human variants. And here's these deer variants. And it's fascinating things that they're doing. South Carolina had one spillback to human um, I think it correlated it to the interaction with deer, though, it sounds like some close interaction. But they're having they're actually, I think, having trouble making the connection on how that person like like the people in most cases, those few incidents didn't handle the deer. They weren't near a deer. So they're not sure. So maybe someone else handled the deer, got that virus, passed it to that person. And that person was the only one sampled. Expressed, yeah. The original person wasn't sampled. That's that's probably what's going on. So there's, you know, it's not like we need to worry about SARS-CoV-2 virus passing from from deer to us. It, it hasn't really caused a real problem. You know, hunters shouldn't be concerned about shooting a deer and, and, and gutting a deer. There's no evidence that we need to be concerned. But the USDA and APHIS, and, and now the Western states, WAFWA, this Western Association, are engaged in now expanding that research to mule deer um, and, and elk throughout the West in the Western states. And so we'll That's learn more and more about you know, our populations are lower density. They're more remote. They're not, not as close to, you know, we don't have whitetail. We don't have them in our backyards to the degree that we do whitetail. Um and, and there was a there's a case in mink in the Netherlands where they have a whole bunch of mink farming and some of the workers, then the mink contracted the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They weren't sick, but it spread and changed so much in the mink farms that they found like 65 percent of the mink farm workers had this mutated mink version of the of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, not a human version. So they had gotten it back from. From me. Wow. So th- this is why the disease experts are, con- are, are they're not concerned. They're, they wanted to learn more about, about SARS-CoV-2 and deer in, in, in the West now, too. See, I, I, I'm a glass half full kind of a guy, so I'm just rolling with that concept of every time I eat another uh, rare backstrap stuffed with crab, I'm increasing my antibodies and my resistance to <laughs> SARS-CoV-2. Right. That's right. Good way to look at it. I don't know that I've had backstrap stuff with crab bill you might yeah. have to cook that up for me it's, it's pretty good stuff where okay. do you get crab in tennessee at, at the store walmart <laughs> <laughs> but i'll be in new orleans next week so i'll bring some more home from there too jim i want to give you I, I got a, two more maybe quirky ones and don't don't laugh too hard when you hear what i'm going to say what first one i don't think you'll laugh too hard but just what's the most fascinating deer story you have because I I gotta imagine a guy like you's heard everything under the sun about deer and weird stuff and good stuff and bad stuff. Give us give us just something that you know pique our interest here. I don't I don't know if I have a single story, but what I think is 
is really bizarre and fascinating is some of the odd antlers like the cactus bucks and um and things that you see in in deer there's just and now that we have trail cams everywhere and we have social media where someone gets an odd picture and they used to show it to someone else in a four by six print at the water cooler and now it's all over the world in the next day or so but we get some antler formations and some abnormalities that are caused by um, sometimes um, testicles not dropping into the scrotum and, and some malformations like that and hormone issues. And you get that some changes bizarre... antlers. The testes not dropping changes antlers. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a cryptorchid condition where the testes don't go through that inguinal canal into the scrotum. They stay in the body. Um, and it, and it can cause, depending on what the testes are like, can cause some really bizarre antler growth where they stay in velvet. There's other conditions, um, uh, where the testicles are really small, they're like pea size, and they're not producing the testosterone. So the animals don't need testosterone to grow antlers. They need a surge in testosterone during the rut to, sh- to dry the velvet and shed the velvet. And so if they don't have testosterone, they still grow antlers, but then they never shed the velvet. And in some cases, antler growth will start bubbling out underneath, and then they don't shed the, the antlers either. And so sometimes the next year, you'll have velvet growth bubbling out underneath the antlers or those antlers extending that when it comes to deer, that that's really the most um, kind of bizarre situation is what can happen to some of these antlers with injuries to the growing antler or the pedicle bases or with hormonal um, malformations. There's even in in the um, one peninsula on Kodiak Island in Alaska where the Sitka black-tailed deer have a very high incidence of this cryptorchid nature, this cryptorchidism, and um, hypogonadal is when they have the small testes and they're in the scrotum. But there's a high incidence of deer that have these these um, bizarre velvet antler formations. There's some theory that it's from some of the compounds in kelp. They're coming down to the beach. They're eating a bunch of kelp. Kelp has some what's called phytoestrogen, so it's like a plant-based estrogen, and that estrogen might be interfering with the antler cycle. So there's there's no end to fascinating things when you start talking about antler malformations. Am I a weird guy? Because if I see, uh, you know, if I see antlers that look kind of bizarre, I wouldn't want to take that animal. Yes, like, and I no. feel like yes, there's something weird, weird about that animal. critter. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like I associate it with like, it's a malformation. Uh huh. You know, that's just how my mind works. I don't know if I'm just kind of ignorant there or what. Yeah. I wrote an article once on antler does and females will get antlers in some strange cases. And I, I named that the title of that article, the, the ultimate non-typical. I mean, you've got a doe that, that has antlers and, and that can happen from a variety of reasons too. Wow. I, I don't know. I, I think freaky antlers are kind of cool. I mean, yeah. when I see a cow horn spike, I, if I've still got one on my license, I'm taking him just because that's such a, to me, a bizarre yeah. thing. And, and I don't even know what that means, Bill. What's a cow horn mount. spike? I'll send you a picture or two. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, of course I, did you do research, yeah. I did do research in Mississippi. I know what a cow horn spike is. Yeah, I would. Basically shoot, a mature spike. Yeah, I would shoot a, a, a bizarre antler deer because I wanted to take a close look at it because I've written so much about it and I would want to examine it. I've seen some of these on the internet, you know, they've got like 30 points. I mean, so many just kind of crawling and growing all over each other. I just, it, I, I kind of get grossed out by it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in those that are producing captivity. Those are just, um, those are just monsters. 
you know, that are yeah. hand, hand raised that way. I have no interest in that. Well, I got two more things for you. One, do you have any good deer jokes? Is there any good deer jokes jumping around your profession? Because <laughs> the the one I hear in Colorado, it's not really a joke, but we ha- I have literally heard somebody say this. At what altitude did deer become elk? I've heard a person <laughs> say that. <laughs> and it's not a joke exactly, but it's pretty funny. I mean, uh-huh. you just about spit out your coffee, yep. Bill, because that's what you do when you hear it. Yes. Uh-huh. Exactly. Well, you know the price of you know the deer nuts that you get in the in, in the store. You know how how much deer nuts cost. They're usually under a buck. <laughs> there's there's one. That's a good dad joke. I I can tell my kids that one. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, uh, we've had you for a while here. I don't know, Bill. Do you have anything else for Jim, or should we just let him drop a, a nice little ending? salvo here and get yeah get let's it. let's give him the floor because i've learned more about mule deer just in this hour than than i ever thought to know and i've enjoyed it <laughs> well i enjoy talking about um about mule deer and i i just think it, everybody that's listening that's interested in deer needs to get involved in a local organization um mule deer foundation there's there's a ton of them out there doing a lot of good stuff and most of them are working towards habitat. It doesn't even have to be a deer organization, but you should be involved in a group that's working on improving and protecting habitat and not just deer habitat. You know, when we protect deer habitat and sagebrush communities, we protect habitat for a ton of other species. And so I just encourage people to get involved with a habitat focus. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Our friend Joel Peterson went from turkeys to to mule deer. Uh, Bill, so maybe maybe that'll drag you west a little bit to think about mule deer a little bit more since Turkey guy went west. Uh-huh. Absolutely, man, and 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 the habitat thing. I don't care where you are. That's that's where it's at, and, mm-hmm. and supporting each other in that is a positive, no matter where you are. Yeah, well, Jim, thank you so much. You're, you're a heck of a busy guy. You're you're one of the best to talk to. I love your conservation ethos. Your your writing. Your your speeches. Uh, every time I get to interact with you, I just appreciate it. And, and everybody I know speaks highly of you. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross in person again. And if they do, next time I'm getting you on 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 recorded here again. And you, yeah. you owe me. I'll, I'll buy you a beer or something and we'll make it happen. That sounds good. Thank, thanks for everything. I appreciate being on. All right, everybody. Take care. See you next time. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are NWF Outdoors. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.